Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On today's episode, a trio of all-star starting pitchers go down in the American League, and we discuss which injury has most damaged the team's chances of contention. After that, we'll discuss a surprising Yankees team well-equipped to shoulder the loss of their struggling first baseman. How'd they get to the top of the AL East so quickly, and will it last? Plus, we, we review the Pirates' high-A call-up, Randy the Random gen- Number Generator's offseason, and the Kyle Kendrick era begins in Boston. It's the DFA Podcast. And welcome to episode three of DFA, a podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I'm Brian Grosnick of BP, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, R.J. Anderson of CBS Sports. R.J., it's a beautiful Thursday morning. There are plenty of day games on the schedule. What more do you want? I want a lot, Brian. I want a lot. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a little dark. Um, so, so, yeah, but at least I, I hope you can be excited about uh, plenty of day baseball on a Thursday. Usually these are kind of weak schedule days, so... True. I was up to like 2.30 last night, though, because of uh, the Dodgers and Giants. So, oh. yes, and we were recording this for reference about 9 a.m. on the East Coast, so it was a quick turnaround. I have a new appreciation for those afternoon games following extra <laughs> inning affairs late night. So, This is the equivalent of your, uh, your night-day doubleheader uh, as far as baseball writing and podcasting goes, I suppose. Yes. Well, um, you know, it may be a beautiful day and there may be lots of good baseball on this afternoon, but unfortunately, we are going to carry over a theme from the previous episode and talk about the the unbelievable sadness that is the early season injury bug. Um, you know, here on the show, we don't have a lot to talk about other than. Uh, 10-day and 60-day disabled list moves. There are some other moves we'll get to a little bit later, but the big move for the last few days is probably, I would say, uh, Cole Hamels hitting the disabled list with a oblique strain. It looks like it might keep him out for a couple of months, and this is just another in a series of so, so depressing pitching injuries um, that are hurting teams that are already light on pitching. Um, so, RJ, you can kick it off and, and talk a little bit about why the Paul Hamels injury is is important um, and uh, and what you think this means for the Rangers going forward. Well, I mean, anytime you lose a pitcher of Hamels caliber, it's going to be it's going to hurt your team. But the Rangers have a lot of problems right now, and they really can't <laughs> afford to lose another starting pitcher because if you remember, Tyson Ross hasn't returned yet. You know, Chichi Gonzalez is even on the disabled list. So that rotation right now is going to feature, feature Nick Martinez, AJ Griffin. It's just not a good place for them to be, and, and you add in there's already slow start, and they really could not afford to lose another key player. 
because some of the key players they have aren't even producing. You know, Jonathan Lucroy, Mike Napoli, and Odor, they haven't really gotten anything from them. So if the Rangers were going to try and get back into the American League West race, they needed not only pristine health, but they needed their best players to get going. And obviously losing Hamels for this length of time is not going to help whatsoever. So that's a big shot for a team that was already in a pretty big hole. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the rotation, like you said, uh, behind Darvish and Perez, uh, you know, is Andrew Kashner really a number three starter for a team that you expect to at least fight for a wild card berth? Uh, probably not. AJ Griffin's yes. coming off an injury of his own. Uh, Kashner has a sub one strikeout to walk ratio, so don't be confused by the shiny ERA. <laughs> he has been as mystifying as ever. So yeah, I mean, this is a Rangers team, just like you said that cannot afford to lose another player with Beltre out with uh, Prince Fielder forever out and, uh, and Tyson Ross not able to come back at all. So the drop off from Hamels to whoever's behind him, which in this case might be AJ Griffin, who was almost the worst starting pitcher in baseball last year. Uh, shout out to Jared Weaver. Uh, he, I mean, this is, you know, could be even just over two months. This could be like two or three wins that you'd have to knock off the Rangers ledger from a, from a value perspective. Right. I think that's about right. Yeah. So Hamels is not the only important starting pitcher to get injured, not even in the last couple of days, but you know, all, all April long, we've now lost Corey Kluber who will be hitting the 10 day disabled list. Uh, Hyunjin Ryu is headed for the disabled list. Edison Volquez of the Marlins, and it's it's weird to say Edison Volquez is an important starting pitcher, but it's the world we live in now. The the Marlins don't have any other important starting pitchers, so losing Volquez is going to hurt them. He's got a blister issue, uh, not to mention anybody else who's already been hurt in April and May. So I think the big question here is, is Hamels' injury the most devastating for any team to lose a starting pitcher or is there something else over the past you know four or five weeks that you think might even be a bigger blow than the rangers losing hamels i think it depends on how you want to define this because if we're just talking about the pitcher's talent level then you can probably throw madison Baumgartner into this conversation or just go with kluber although obviously hamels is going to miss significantly more time than kluber is expected to miss but if we're talking about like the team situation and where they really cannot afford to lose a starting pitcher, then I think you might even talk about Shelby Miller with the Diamondbacks. Because, really? You know, yes, because let me just reason this out. I'm not saying it's correct, but I'm just you know thinking on my feet here. Texas is already in a hole. Cleveland's going to be fine if Kluber misses two or three starts. Uh, I, I mean, we talked about Bumgarner. You know, like the Giants are in a hole too, no matter whether they have Bumgarner starting or not. Arizona got off to that really impressive start. You know, they're a half game out of first place this morning. Mm-hmm. The drop off from Miller to Banda, I know it's Shipley who's replacing him, but Banda or Shipley, that can be significant because we talked about how, you know, they're just hoping to get like a number four starters production level out of either of these two. Miller, he's inconsistent. He was really bad last season. He's shown in the past he can be greater than a number four, however. And even if, I mean, let's put it another way. Say Shipley and Banda disappoint, then the Diamondbacks have to essentially declaw their bullpen and move Archie Bradley to the rotation. So there's some cascading effects there. I'm not saying Miller is the best pitcher on the stable list, and I'm not sure if my reasoning 
will be one that I agree with in an hour's time. But I, <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, if you're looking at this from a team perspective, who could least afford to lose the starting pitcher they've lost? I I think it might be the Diamondbacks if they want to contend, if they want to keep up the Cinderella run all the way until you know September or October. I, I think that's a really interesting point because with Miller, he's a little different than some of these other injuries that we've talked about so far in that it looks like he's definitely going to be out for the whole season. Whereas with Bumgarner, with um, Hamels, even with Noah Syndergaard of the Mets, those are pitchers who should at some point come back and pitch this season. So Miller makes a lot of sense from my perspective. Um, I, I definitely agree with with your reasoning there because he the drop-off is so severe. I do tend to think that perhaps maybe the Giants and Bumgarner or the Rangers and and Hamels might be a little bit more severe because I definitely feel like those two teams had higher expectations coming into the season and that the expected level performance for both those pitchers is somewhere a little bit above what Miller would be. I mean, Bumgarner I is definitely the engine that drives that Giants rotation and going from him to Ty Black or going from Hamels to whether it's AJ Griffin or, or Chi-Chi is going to be a huge drop off as well. It just may not be for as long of a time. And the Giants were really expected to contend for a wild card. The Rangers were really expected to either contend for the wild card or challenge the Astros. So that's a big loss. Kluber and Syndergaard are probably the two best starters out of this bunch. But in those two cases, those rotations were deep enough that they could maybe shoulder the injury a little bit better. And um, with Syndergaard, the only reason that that injury hurts them at so much is because there were so many other injuries that have kind of cascaded uh, prior to that with the loss of Seth Lugo and Steven Matz, Matt Harvey looking uh, completely broken. So I think that one by itself would not have hurt the Mets in the same way, just like how the Kluber injury, well, you know, the Indians still do have Danny Salazar and Carlos Carrasco and Trevor Bauer. And Ryan Merritt, hopefully. I hope <laughs> Ryan Merritt gets I, – I just like that story. You know, I definitely enjoyed watching him last postseason too, with that quick tempo and that slow curveball. That's my jam, Ryan. <laughs> it was my jam. It's funny because I'm on the other side of that where, where I really wanted to see Mike Clevenger kind of step in and be that really uh, surprising good uh, fifth starter for the uh, for the Indians. And so it's down to him and Merritt usually. And and I'm more of a Clevenger man myself with his uh, with his fastball and his uh, breaking pitches. So uh, sure, but looking at know, logically here, I'm just looking at <laughs> ability to say fast tempo and slow curveball. <laughs> Yeah, Merritt is fun to watch in the way he works. Yeah. As long as it's not Cody Anderson, I think we're all going to be pretty well, happy. He's out for the season too, so right. maybe Cody Anderson. Maybe maybe Cody Anderson is the actual answer here. That's yeah, maybe the most <laughs> significant injury. Yeah. yeah, that seems pretty unlikely. Um, so that's uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about our second topic from significant injuries to an injury that may not be all that significant. Uh, so over the over the last couple of days, Greg Bird has headed to the 10-day disabled list. Uh, the Yankees' nominal starting first baseman. He's been a pretty serious disappointment to start the season, but there hasn't been much else in the way of disappointment for the Yankees to start the season. They're really surprising. They've got a one-game lead now at the top of the AL East when it looked like this might have been a rebuilding year for them. Uh, so the bird injury hasn't damaged them too much. Gary Sanchez missed the uh, almost the entire season as well, but the Yankees are surging. They're playing very well. 
RJ, what do you think about the Yankees this year? Are they for real? Are they not for real? And do you think this bird injury is going to come back to haunt them? Well, I've been surprised with how well they played, which I guess that's kind of self-evident. You just said, you know, Gary Sanchez, who a lot of people expected to be the best player on this team. He's barely played and he didn't give them a lot when he did play. I don't know if they're real to the extent that, you know, they're going to be a 17. They're going to play like a 17 and nine pace all season long. I mean, if you check their Pythagorean record, they're actually supposed to be 17 and nine. So, you know, (laughs) their play so far seems to merit the record, but you know, I look at the roster and I'm just not sure I'm ready to be like, Oh yeah, they're a legitimate AL East contender. That said, I mean, Aaron judge has been, he's been like Barry Bonds out there. Matt holiday has been a revelation for them. Even like Ronald Torres, he was fine. I mean, you know, it's an empty on base percentage, a fairly empty slugging percentage, but he enters the day with like a 97 OPS plus Austin Romine has a 120 OPS plus, uh, even, you go to their pitching staff. I mean, Jordan Montgomery was impressive for someone who, frankly, I don't know if he made a lot of, I think he was in prospect list, but he wasn't like, you know, in that system, it's easy to get buried if you're not like an elite prospect. So I right. think he might've been at the back end of their top 10. And then in the bullpen, I mean, Batances has been, I think he's got like a 0.93 ERA. Chapman is like a 0.87 ERA. Adam Warren is like 0.63 and even Tyler Clippard, I mean, he's given up a couple of home runs, but he's in the ones as well. So this has really been an impressive unit. The only area we can kind of nitpick is probably the rotation. You know, Tanaka had that very rough start to begin the year. Sabathia, eh. But otherwise, <laughs> uh, Luis Severino has looked better than anyone expected last year. And Michael Panada has like a nine strikeout to walk ratio. Granted, he's given up more home runs than you would like to see. But this has been an impressive and surprising group so far. And why I don't think they're going to win the American League East, I mean, at this point, maybe they are better than we expected. And, you know, they've banked these wins. Like, you know, they, these are not going to be wins they give back. So, hey, why can't they hang around for longer than we anticipated? And with that young talent on the way, too, if they really wanted at the deadline, you know, they can make some noise. Yeah, that's very true. So the baseball prospectus playoff odds, they have the Yankees projected to be about a 500 team going forward. But with the wins that they've already banked, that gives them a uh, slightly over 50 percent chance to make the playoffs, which, you know, the playoff odds aren't the end all be all. But I mean, that's really surprising going into the season They're They've got a better chance of making the playoffs than, let's say, uh, any team in the net in the American League, aside from the Indians, Astros and Red Sox, um, they've got a much better chance of making the playoffs now than the Mets, the Cardinals, the Rockies, the Diamondbacks, the Giants. All these teams that either are looking good to start the season or were projected to play very well uh, prior to the season starting. So that's really surprising to me. And the the biggest surprise is that even if the team didn't have Gary Sanchez and Greg Bird. This offense wasn't supposed to be very good, like you were saying. Now, Aaron Judge has played far better than I think anybody would have expected. 13 homers in just a little over a month of work. The little guys that you mentioned, like Austin Romine and Torres, I mean, that's obviously not sustainable, right? I mean, there there's no way that they're going to continue to hit as well as they have been, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, Romine entering the season just seemed like an okay complimentary piece, you know, maybe a second, uh, probably a second catcher, maybe a third catcher even. And Torres, Torres, 
I mean, he's a Mike Sosha kind of player. You know, he's going to put the mm-hmm. ball in play, and sometimes these guys, sometimes these guys hit 300 over 74 plate appearances, and sometimes they hit 258 over 169 plate appearances, as he did last season. And that's the difference between a 97 OPS plus and a 79 OPS plus, because he doesn't really walk. He's not going to strike out either, but you know, he's not going to hit for power. He's like five eight and 150 pounds officially, so. He's probably actually smaller than that. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't think these bit players are going to continue to play at this level. Right, and even some of the guys who are a little bit of a higher tier than than those, uh, Chase Headley, Starlin Castro, those are guys who are hitting at Mike Trout levels right now. Yes. Uh, they've got really high batting averages on balls in play. They're not hitting for just a ton of power, but they're, they've both got over 400 on-base percentages. Anyone who's watched the Yankees over the last couple of years knows that Chase Headley is not going to continue to get on base uh, two times out of five. I mean, that that just seems ridiculous, um, though they do look better at the plate than they have in the past. Yes. So one thing that's kind of interesting here is they've been able, like I said, they've they've shouldered the burden of losing Bird and of losing Sanchez. And I think that has something to do with some of the transactions that they made in the offseason. Uh, they brought in Matt Holliday. They brought in Chris Carter. At the time, those transactions may have seemed a little bit like they were uh, moves that might block some of the young talent, um, maybe a little bit even questionable. I mean, bringing Holiday in and Carter, those are both kind of DH types of players. Um, it was thought that maybe one of them would would block, you know, a Tyler Wade or an Aaron Judge, uh, which obviously that hasn't happened because of the injuries that have come up. So looking back, I know it's just a, a month in. How do you think the Yankees offseason went last year and do you think that's really affected how they've been able to play so well this year well we really didn't see them make a lot of moves last offseason they did sign holiday did sign carter obviously brought back chapman i don't i guess you can say that yeah it's definitely affected how they've played because holiday has been very good and carter he hasn't been great but he has been better than greg bird i think i think it's interesting to reflect on like what we thought when they signed Carter, because you kind of hinted at it. We all viewed the Carter signing as a precursor to another move, whether it was a Brett Gardner trade, whether it was judge being demoted, whether it was even bird being demoted as he worked his way back. I wonder if Brian Cashman just looked at his roster and said, you know what? I'm relying on bird who missed all of last season I'm relying on Matt Holliday, who is entering his late 30s and has not been as durable over the past two seasons as he was earlier in his career. I can get a guy who hit that many home runs last season for a couple million dollars. I would be insane not to add him to the bench. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, it limits your flexibility. You know, it's hard to carry multiple DH types. But I wonder if he just thought of it not as a 25-man roster, not as the idyllic 25-man roster, but as that 30 to 35 man roster that every general manager seems to talk about you need in order to get through 162 games. So that's, I'm just wondering if maybe we were too smart for our own good when we were analyzing that Carter signing and we were trying to think like, you know, Oh, he's playing chess here when really he was just like, no, I just want to have a legitimate DH in case or, you know, when holiday goes down or when Greg bird goes down because, you know, you losing Greg Bird is a great burden to the Yankees, Brian. Boo. Yes, Boo. I am so sorry. <laughs> Please fire me now. 
Oh man, that's that's a bad one. That's that's a Mike Gianella esque pun. Uh, sorry, you can Mike. Be clever sometimes. Oh no, I I, I love Mike. <laughs> sorry, Mike. <laughs> I'm just teasing, but like, no, that was, that was horrible. And, and we yes. should cut that out in post-production, but uh, no, I, I definitely agree with the, with what you're saying though. If, if not uh, the, the clever way in which you said it, I, I also think it's kind of interesting because I really do think that these teams these days are kind of trying to follow more of the Cubs mold of the uh, you can't have enough depth in position players. If you're going to have a limited bench, than having really high-end guys who can do one thing really well, whether it's hit for power, speed, um, play great defense. The the quality of the end-of-the-bench types of guys on teams that are playing well seems to be improving. I don't know if that's just anecdotal, if it's always been like this with winning teams, but when you go and look at the Cubs and the Dodgers, who are you know, ostensibly probably the two best teams in baseball on paper, they tend to have much better depth from their benches than I would have expected from uh, teams that carry already such high-end talent in their starting lineups. And I wonder if that was maybe something of what the Yankees were thinking here, or if it was really just um, kind of similar to what you said. Um, There was an asset available at a very reasonable price, and it just made sense for them to try to collect that asset and worry about where it fits in a little bit later. Could have been both. I mean, realistically, sure. it's possible they just envisioned Carter as, you know, this elite power hitter. I mean, if you pinch hit with that guy, he has literal, literal, excuse me, game-changing ability. You know, if you're down mm-hmm. two runs and I mean, he can pop one, especially in that stadium, and all of a sudden it's a tied game. So maybe they did view it from the perspective of he's really good at this one thing. This one thing can have great situational value. Let's bring him in, even though it's not a role he's necessarily comfortable with. If he can get the hang of it, he can be a huge asset to us in situational baseball, which is not always captured in you know, the overall metrics, you know, the one-stop shop metrics. So, yeah, I would be interested to know what exactly they were thinking, but my guess is it's somewhere in between or some combination of what we've outlined here. Sure, sure. If Pineda and Severino stop giving up so many home runs, the, the front end of their rotation could be could be very good, although – Pineda and Severino have never really showed in the past that they would stop giving up tons of home runs. So I'm not sure that's really going to happen, but I'll I'll ask this as kind of the last question. Do you think that the Yankees will be buyers or sellers at the deadline, uh, knowing what you know now? Uh, I'm going to go with buyers. I don't know that they were necessarily sellers in a position to sell. I mean, you know, I feel like if there was a Brett Gardner trade out there that they liked, it would have already happened. Same with Chase Headley. Realistically, I guess I'm just not sure who they would have traded. Maybe Tanaka if they had no intent to re-sign him. Uh, maybe Clipper too. But otherwise, yeah, I don't, I don't think they were likely to be sellers. I just think they were kind of likely to make one little move and otherwise play out the play out the string, promote some of the youngsters, and keep turning the wheel, so to speak, until they're back on top. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I, as long as there are enough starting pitchers that you know can fill out all of the major league rosters come uh, come July, I think the Yankees might go after somebody who could be kind of a stopgap, a a mid-level starter at the at the deadline, unless things really fall apart for them up to this point. You know, you could see them going after a Bartolo Colon type, I think, or a, maybe someone slightly better, where they wouldn't have to mortgage too much of their future, but they could. Uh, improve immediately and and maybe make that push for a wild card or or who knows even hang on to the AL East. You were gonna say Francisco Liriano. I was convinced you were gonna say Francisco Liriano. We're gonna trade Francisco Liriano to all 29 teams before July 31st. Yeah, that would be that. actually uh, Liriano is a pretty good uh, pretty good pick there. I I definitely see him changing hands at some point, especially yes. with the the Blue Jays being so bad and Liriano being such a kind of a wild card. So, but yeah, it's making things interesting. I mean, as much as, you know, you can kind of get sad for all of these injuries, um, the, the Yankees being unexpectedly good with all of these young players and Aaron judge being, uh, doing his best Giancarlo Stanton impersonation. I mean, that's been a lot of fun to watch the start of the season. So every time I get sad about somebody going down with a massive injury, you can always look at these positives and Gary Sanchez coming back and, and hopefully playing very well. So, you know, there's, there's some, there's some silver linings to the, uh, to the injuries that are coming up at the start of the season. You just, I just want to capture this moment for posterity. A Mets fan just, <laughs> just looked at the Yankees as an uplifting story. The Yankees playing well as an uplifting story. Not, oh, the Yankees are playing horribly. This is so inspiring. A Mets <laughs> fan just cited the Yankees playing unexpectedly well as a good thing. Well, 2017 it, is wild. <laughs> They're not the Phillies. So let's let's just get that, that out of the way <laughs> yeah. first. Uh, the yeah. Phillies and the Braves, I, I would much rather see uh, you know go down in, in flames than the Yankees. But I know that probably makes me a bad Mets fan. But what can you do? Grew up in New Jersey. So too many Yankees fans in the, uh, in the family, so to speak. So that's uh, that does it for our big second topic. I think maybe we can bring in Sean now and we can take some batting practice on some of the uh, the other minor moves around the league. Uh, any other transactions that have happened in the last few days that are worth talking about. So, Sean, hit us with uh, with what you got. And just to add back to, to the bird thing, you talk about Matt Holiday. Uh, really, does his play help uh, help the bird injury fly under the radar? Yes. Well, I mean, yeah, definitely. I, I don't think you can. <laughs> fly under the radar it just took me a minute so uh yeah no i think i think holiday's acquisition without that the team would be hurting a lot and and not only that holiday but playing well and um and staying relatively healthy to start the season i mean that's that's a big deal if they had been running well i guess aaron hicks has been playing well too so i guess everybody's playing well but if they had been running somebody like a uh, tyler austin out there i'm not sure they'd be playing quite as well so moving on to the c block now the Dodgers optioned Scott Van Slyke to Triple A to bring Franklin Gutierrez off of the DL. Yeah, and Gutierrez then homered in his first at bat back against Matt Moore. You know, last season the Dodgers needed someone like Van Slyke who could fill in a couple positions, match lefties. So far this season he hasn't gotten the job done. Gutierrez is a wild card. You never know if he's going to stay healthy. But if he does, he should, in theory, be exactly what they need. So we'll see how that plays out. But it makes a lot of sense for them to make that swap right now. Yeah, they're very similar players, right? They're they're specifically lefty uh, mashers. And so him coming in and hitting a, a dinger off of Matt Moore uh, 
uh, Gutierrez. I mean, that's exactly what they're paying him to do. Um, it's just kind of, I think, uh, one of those things that the Dodgers can do that few other teams can do where they can play the hot hand. And, you know, if you need an outfielder who's a specialist in beating up lefties, well, they've got two pretty good ones. And if Vance Light's not playing well, then they can run Gutierrez out there and wait until one's healthy. And, I mean, that's that's a really great problem to have, isn't it? Yeah, those are the kind of problems you would love to have if you're basically every other team. (laughs) So now we go to... Blue Jays up north, they released Jared Soplumakia, who had 26 plate appearances this year, one hit and 16 strikeouts. I mean, that's as bad as you could hope for. And with Soplumakia being a bat-only catcher, uh, when you're striking out, what, I think that was something like 61% of his plate appearances, even if it's that small of a 26 plate appearance sample, the team has to move on and right away, especially when you're in the Blue Jays position where every single run is counting so much, um, given that their offense has been so bad this year. They were able to get a pretty decent replacement for him, I think, in Luke Mail, who's your kind of your, your typical catch-and-throw uh, backup catcher. I think he's a better overall player than Salta Lamacchia at this point in his career. So um, I, I feel bad for Salta Lamacchia, who, who can't seem to get it together, but hopefully he'll be able to latch on somewhere, play in AAA, and, and figure something out. Yeah, I'm a fan of Luke Mayle. Uh, he, like you said, he's a good catch and throw backstop. I was surprised Tampa Bay let him go because he does seem like a pretty solid third catcher to have and someone who in time could become a decent backup. Plus he has, you know, all American boy next door, good looks, um, <laughs> not quite handsome, but you know, anyway, the point is, yeah, that's, I mean, Salsa Lamakia, we talk, you know, Bill James used to talk about uh, statistical significance. And I feel like if you're striking out 16 times and 26 plate appearances and you're a 32 year old catcher, you're probably done. Honestly. I mean, he might go to AAA and work his way back into the majors, but his days as a meaningful member of a big league roster are just about over with. The the one quick thing, I uh, spent a lot of time with the Rays catching depth uh, this offseason when I worked baseball prospectus annual, and I must have written up maybe uh, nine different Rays catchers uh, comments for that annual. And I think that's the reason why Mail uh, might have been replaceable to the Rays. They brought in Jesus Sucre. They have Kirk Casale. Uh, they have three or four at least interesting uh, catchers in the minor leagues. Uh, maybe not great, maybe not more than backups, but they've got a lot of 40-man roster spots tied up in catchers. And, you know, Mail is is good and he is handsome, uh, but I'm not certain that the Rays among all teams had enough space to hold on to all their catching depth. So they, someone had to go. I, I'm a little surprised it was Mail, but, um, yeah, somebody had to had to move on, I'm afraid. I would just note that in Tampa Bay, being a backup catcher means you're actually qualified to start, as we've seen time and again over the years. That's the place where backups go to help solidify their pension, you know? It's sure, absolutely. So the Rockies sent down Tony Walter, or sent Tony Walters to the disabled list, and they called up Ryan Hannigan. Are we testing the bounds of how much Coors can help a hitter? Hey, speaking of backup catchers who went to Tampa (laughs) Bay to start, uh, you know, the Rockies just cannot catch a break here. Tom Murphy's already on the disabled list. Walters had been playing really well. Now he's hurt. Hannigan has not been an effective hitter in years. You know, once he hit 30, it seemed like the bat really slowed down. And his only 
Hustle at this point is walking, and that just doesn't get it done. That said, you know, he's always been a good uh, defender. There were some murmurs in Tampa Bay that he didn't work well with the pitching staff, but it seems like those murmurs pop up every year about their latest acquisition. Like Rene Rivera, there was some grumbling there, and I'm sure when Derek Norris leaves in, you know, a couple months, that there'll be grumblings there. I mean, I don't think Hannigan is going to hit, so I don't think the course part even matters. But, you know, hopefully he does. It'd be nice to see him and his weird setup behind the plate continue to get playing time somewhere in the majors, just probably not in Colorado for long. Yeah, I think it's interesting because with Walters and then bringing up Hannigan to replace him, it seems like the Rockies are finally um, – kind of on board with the framing thing. Uh, Walters has a reputation as a very good framer, which is uh, remarkable considering that he was a hybrid catcher, second baseman, and before that, a full-time second baseman infielder. So uh, his being able to adapt to framing very quickly and very effectively is good. Uh, Walters has kind of turned out to be one of those surprise pseudo prospects to play really well and those are always great stories so i hope he's able to come back soon and i'm certain like you said when he does uh ryan hannigan will be off to his next stop whether that's back to triple a or some other team but he's not long for the majors anymore for whatever it's worth i've been told before the rockies have smart analytical dudes in their front office and a couple years ago they actually led the league in shifts so Mm -hmm. maybe their interest in framing and maybe this uh you know, the shifts and all that are just proof that, yeah. Yeah. And plus, I mean, hiring Bud Black, you know, he's kind of, I think he's held up as one of the two or three best managers if you're really into sabermetrics or, you know, at least top five. So, you know, that front office is probably a little bit more progressive than they get credit for. Although some of the signings are still, you know, frankly, a little questionable, but, you know, they play a different brand of baseball there. So, sure. I don't know. So Stephen Wright, also one of the pitchers to hit the disabled list this season, 2016 All-Star, and the Red Sox called up Kyle Kendrick to take his place. So how do the Red Sox maintain while they wait for him to return? I I mean, if Kyle Kendrick is your replacement, things are bad. Uh, Kendrick didn't pitch in the majors in 2016. Uh, He pitched in the minors for the Angels and was bad. Uh, so this is not good. He's not been he's been terrible in AAA for the uh, Red Sox so far this season. Uh, he hasn't walked anybody, but he's got a six ERA in Pawtucket. Uh, the only kind of silver lining is that Wright has been terrible, too. He's been pretty bad ever since he was an all star last year. Um, so, I mean, you know, the Red Sox really don't have any quality depth, which is kind of scary to say because, you know, they have some guys in their Pawtucket rotation who were supposed to be worthwhile starting pitchers, Henry Owens, uh, Brian Johnson, and they've had some injury issues or they've had some control issues. But, you know, when you're running Kyle Kendrick out there, no matter how many opening day starts he's made over the last few years, he's not good. And it's a bad sign for the Red Sox trying to hold off the Yankees. Yeah. And how do they, how do they stay afloat with Kyle Kendrick starting? Well, they start scoring runs. That yeah. would be the best way to do that is just start hitting the ball like we all expected them to. They entered today ranked 27th in true average. The only teams worse than them are the Giants, White Sox, and Royals. And, of course, you know, they're clustered right there with the Orioles, Rangers, and Blue Jays. So they're not the only team who is in the bottom 10 that surprises us, but that they're certainly one that could use that turnaround, especially every – fifth day when Kendrick's on the mound. 
Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, you just think about what this rotation was supposed to be with Porcello and Sale and Price and Pomeranz and Rodriguez. And then, you know, seeing how they've they've kind of it's come apart for them. They're they're short Carson Smith and Tyler Thornburg. It's uh, it's just surprising. It's just one of those things, how fleeting rotation depth is and how quickly it goes away. Um, but, yeah, the Kyle Kendrick era begins now. Hopefully it's a short one. So focusing on Kyle Kendrick a little more. His third team in the last two seasons, he's been in the bigs. How many teams do we think Kendrick ends up playing for when all things are said and done with his career? Maybe like one more after this. I don't think, you know, he's at that point where, you know, he's no longer a cute little potential laden, uh, you know, back end starter. He's well beyond that point. And I would guess he gets maybe one more appearance after this. I mean, he's already on the other side of 30. I don't know. Maybe he flukes his way into four or five good starts here, and someone gives him a look next season. But he hasn't had an ERA plus over 100 since 2012. That was a year he split between the rotation and the bullpen. And I just don't think there's a whole lot there. I mean, his career strikeout rate is 4.9 per nine. So, yeah, I think he has one more team in him, and then that'll be all she wrote. I could, uh, I, if we don't count like the NC Dinos in Korea, then <laughs> I think that it might really be zero. I don't know if he'll get another start in the big leagues after this with another team. Uh, the Red Sox may hold on to him and use him as a spot starter all season long, but I just, it's hard to imagine another team giving him a shot. Then again, everyone's broken, so maybe, maybe it'll happen. So speaking of pitchers, you don't think that are going to get. Shots and always continue to. Tommy Malone for the Brewers DFA'd <laughs> last week. The surprising thing, he has a 686 K9 and has only walked two people this season. So, do we think he gets a shot somewhere else in 2017? Uh, see, I actually liked Tommy Malone this offseason because I know how, that sounds so pathetic. Wow. When you say it out loud, you know, you don't realize how bad that sounds until you say it out loud. But no, because here's the thing over his career, he has thrown more than 700 big, big league innings now. He has a 94 ERA plus and a 2.89 strikeout to walk ratio. And those are perfectly acceptable numbers from a back end starter. So I liked that Milwaukee went out and got him. I thought, hey, you know, is it pretty to watch? No, but he's been effective. The numbers are always there. You know, why can't he come in there and be an effective number five starter type? The problem is that, you know, with his stuff, he doesn't have a huge margin for error. And he, like you mentioned, Sean, the strikeout to walk ratio is really good. It's eight right now, but he's been a little too hittable. He's given up nearly three home runs per nine, which he gave up nearly two home runs per nine last season with the Twins. So he might be at the point where he can throw strikes, but when he makes a mistake, it's going to get clobbered, and that's just not going to allow him to be an effective big league pitcher. But, yeah, I, I thought that was a smart signing at the time. Yeah, you just look at the DRA from the last couple of seasons, and uh, deserved run average does not like Tommy Malone as much as his ERA or as much as his fifth, which is saying something, because, I mean, he's got almost a career DRA, a little over five, um, and over the last two seasons, it's been closer to to seven uh, between this season and last, so you have to figure if they're really looking to... um, 
give somebody else a shot. I mean, do you think he might have been a stabilizer if he's not going to work as a rotation stabilizer when you were a young team like the Brewers? You've got to move on and, and see if there's somebody else you can give a shot and maybe find the next junior Guerra or uh, or some other guy who's unexpectedly good give uh, kind of roll the dice on somebody else so it's a shame i do think that malone's an easy guy to root for i mean soft tossing lefties are kind of uh as as evidence before a little bit of rj's jam um i i think he's likely to get another shot before before kendrick does yeah i agree with that and i mean you know there's room for him in someone's bullpen i would think last night we had the two best teams by record in the national league playing in the Nationals and the Diamondbacks in the eighth inning of that game. And it was a one run game featured TJ McFarlane and Jacob Turner. Mm. So there's room for Tommy Malone in someone's bullpen or in someone's rotation as a guy who just, I mean, couldn't the Rangers theoretically plug him in? And I mean, it's a bad fit ballpark wise, you know, there's teams out there that could theoretically use him at the back of a rotation and see if he can give them, you know, a couple of starts of league average performance, even if it doesn't always look like league average performance. I yeah. feel like he's going to resurface in the majors at some point soon. I agree with you. I, I could see the Marlins as being a really good fit because yes. organizationally, they kind of are big on uh, guys who can throw strikes and keep the ball down. And um, he can do weren't one they, of those things. <laughs> weren't they rumored to be interested in him? Am I imagining that? Wasn't there someone who fit maybe a CJ Wilson and I'm just conflating left-handed pitchers here but no i thought they actually did have reported interest in him at some point so that would make a lot oh maybe it's because they signed jeff Locke, and i just always <laughs> inflate Locke and malone or something i don't know but yeah i thought they did have reported interest in him and that you know that's probably where he'll land is with the marlins because they need they could use a start another starting pitcher especially if justin nicolino does not perform as he uh, has performed in the minors you know I don't know. I've we'll never see. seen I've never seen Locke and Malone in the same place at the same time, so it's possible. I wouldn't that want just to the see them. Guy. I wouldn't <laughs> want to see them. Like that means they're facing each other in a game, and I feel like that would test the boundaries of my affinity for soft tossing left-handers. <laughs> Even I have standards, you know. Like I, I was a Cesar Ramos fan, but I got standards, you know. <laughs> so you have to think the. All it is is command, right? I mean, you look at uh, his batted ball profile, 40.5% of all of his batted balls are fly balls, which hurts you when 20% of those left the park this season. So it has to be a command thing, right? Well, I, go ahead, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. The thing about Malone is that he's always had such a high um, uh, fly ball rate, and there have been a lot of pitchers who are having very high homer to fly ball rates this year. Um, you know, I, I actually brought it up with Pineda and Severino. I, I'm a little bit concerned that the power surge, the, the home run surge that's going on right now, is going to make him less tenable than rather than more tenable. And I'm not sure his command is that much the issue more than just people can really turn on his offerings. It's not exactly uh, swing and miss stuff. And he's he's consistently given up a lot of fly balls and more fly balls are leaving the park. So I just think that's going to continue to be the big issue. Yeah, and I mean, he has been, like you said, he's been a scary fly ball guy because the stuff is not really the kind of stuff you want to see hit into the air. And, you know, if he were, if he had Andrew Triggs ground ball percentage, he's probably still in a big league rotation, is my guess, but he doesn't. And that's why we're talking about him right now instead of talking about him during the B segment last show, you know? <laughs> so, Leonis Martin, 
He was designated for assignment by the Mariners on April 23rd, cleared waivers, and was able to play some more in AAA. So what do we think about him and his chances to come back this season? So I was really surprised. We talked about him on our debut episode, and he wasn't picked up by anybody. Uh, after being DFA'd, I, that was surprising to me. I really thought he'd find a home. Uh, RJ, your idea of the Pirates, I thought was a really good one. I thought there'd be at least some team that was interested in picking him up. Um, so this was really surprising to me to see him go down to play in Tacoma. Yeah, all I can think is that other teams noticed. Supposedly he reworked his swing during either the off season or the spring, and obviously it's taking a little while for that to take in season. But yeah, I thought he would definitely join another roster and that the Mariners would probably reflect upon what got away from them at some point. But I think he's going to work his way back into the majors, and I think there's a decent chance it's with the Mariners because, you know, Jared Dyson is a free agent to be. He's kind of struggled. Conceivably, if the Mariners are not in the race, you know, come July 31st, Dyson would make sense for a contender's bench or, you know, even in a platoon role. And, you know, Ben Gamble has been good in small sample, but Boog Powell, I'm just not a huge fan of him. So I could definitely see Martin working his way back into the majors and working his way back into the majors with the Mariners sometime before the trade deadline. Yeah, I think the big thing for Martin is that his um, his base running ability is going to make him a valuable piece between that and his, his defense, a valuable enough yeah. piece that he'll find his way back up. The the real open question I think is is if his swing is is going to be worse than it was last year. And last year he hit a career high fifteen homers. If he can't at least hit for some power, he's a complete nothing on offense and he'll be the kind of the prototypical fifth, sixth outfielder, a triple A and and to the majors kind of taxi squad guy and that that won't that won't be anything exciting. That'll be that'll be kind of a disappointing end to his his run in the majors. Yeah, I mean he's always been a guy who's been heavy on the secondary skills, and you're right, he needs to hit at least a little bit because otherwise, you know, he's nearing 30. There are going to be more athletic, younger versions of him who are better with a glove, you know, more uh, apt at stealing bases or what have you. So yeah, he needs to hit at least a little bit to lock down a roster spot for the long haul. So finally, now the Pirates called up John Borman on April 30th. He got one plate appearance and struck out in it. Borman was sitting in high A before the move, and it really completes this odd trifecta of of moves of non-prospect guys. So what are the Pirates doing? Well, with Borman, it seemed to be a pragmatic thing. Francisco Cervelli had kind of hurt his foot, and the Pirates were in Miami. Borman is located in Bradenton. Their other catchers were located in Altoona and Pennsylvania. So Borman was able to make the three-hour drive from Bradenton to Miami in about two hours, according to one report I read, which he was not doing the speed limit. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Um, But this was just a case where the Pirates won another catcher. They happened to be closest to Borman. He wasn't going to be needed to play necessarily, but calling him in allowed them that extra bit of, peace of mind and then i mean he's already been sent out he's already been outrighted actually off the 40-man roster and elias diaz has been brought up and that's who you would have expected to get the call anyway so this was just a case where they wanted the body and he happened to be the closest body they could find yeah i did think it was interesting that the uh, pirates gave him two chances to play uh i believe one where he was uh 
uh, he got that strikeout, and then um, there was another possibility of him coming into a game at another point. Um, I, where really, you know, he's kind of like the equivalent of those uh, emergency goalies um, on injury in the uh, in the NHL, where you have a guy who's just playing at the local rink and they they make him suit up and and sit on the bench as the emergency goalie. So that's kind of a similar situation here. The thing that I'm interested in here was the Pirates 40 man roster. So they've made a couple of moves now between Gift Negepi and uh, Davidis Nevaraskis about guys who are not really prospects but have been pulled onto the 40-man roster. Uh, sure, they, um, you know, with Borman, he's already been outrighted off it, but Nevraskis is back in the minors, but he's on the 40, and I think Negepi is still on the 40. Um, I'm not sure if he was before the season. Um, I'm starting to wonder if the Pirates are overusing their 40-man on players who are non-prospects, who are not uh, dramatic improvements over the season, if this is going to come back to bite them at some point, keep them from perhaps picking somebody up that they need to or protecting somebody in the Rule 5 next year. I'm just a little curious as to why they would be making so much of an effort to keep these guys who are considered maybe non-prospects on the 40-man. So just to answer your one question, Nagope was on the 40-man prior to the season. Okay. He was actually added back in November of 2015. He was never really like a big prospect, but everybody loved his glove, loved what he brought to a clubhouse. So in theory, you know, you can kind of get that he's a, uh, you know, an up and down type who is going to be beloved. And who knows, maybe he turns into Michael Martinez or what have you, which is not, I guess, (laughs) maybe not a great comparison for him. But you know what? The fact that he even reached the majors is really a testament to him. He should be very proud of that. But uh, just to actually address what you were talking about, yeah, it's interesting that they do have these fellas on their 40-man. They also have, like, Max Moroff and Chris Bostic and even Danny Ortiz. You know, they have a number of players on their 40-man roster who, frankly, seem like they could be shedded at any moment. Mm-hmm. And I guess the double-edged sword here is that they can kind of play it like the Angels used to play it. I don't know if y'all remember, but... A few years back, the Angels literally brought up like 39 dudes during September because they had like no prospects on their 40-man roster. So they could just bring up everyone, and it was a bunch of not even role players, but just like guy like quad A bats and you know a guy who can run a little bit. And it was just guys who fit these really, really limited roles that might possibly come in handy during September. And I wonder if the Pirates are going to be the team that does that now. And, you know, we're talking about these guys and realistically, if you just look at their player type, they're fairly fungible in the sense that you can always find, uh, I mean, a Borman, you can always find those guys on waivers or available for nothing. And I don't think this is necessarily going to limit their flexibility come the winter. It might limit their flexibility in season, but once winter gets here, they'll shed these guys if they want to or need to, and they'll just find, a replacement on a minor league deal or on a waiver claim and then outright them or what have you. So I do agree it's a little weird, and I do agree that it kind of limits their flexibility right now. But long term, I don't think it'll be an issue because, again, they can just shed them and find some other organization's version of Gift Nagope or whomever we're talking about. Maybe it's Phil Gosselin or whoever. 
Yeah, maybe it would be a bigger deal if they were more in contention, but being at the bottom of the National League Central, maybe yeah. it's it's not that important for them this season to really have that flexibility and play to their, their absolute strengths rather than trying to find a uh, diamond-in-the-rough type of guy, see a guy who really shines once he gets to the major league level. Yeah, it's just disappointing that they are – I mean, it's, it's literally the first week of May, and we're talking about them like it's all over, you know? That's yeah. disappointing because remember when this team looked like it was set up to not necessarily be like a dynasty or anything, but it was like, you know what, they're going to be there for the next however many years. And right now, like Gregory Polanco is not really playing well. Andrew McCutcheon is not playing how he used to play. Cervelli has been a disappointment this season. Even Josh Bell has an OPS plus under 100. It's basically been, you know, Josh Harrison – Jose Asuna has been productive in his small sample, but you know, you look at this roster and it's like, man, what happened here? Yeah. Like, weren't we excited about Cole and Tayon and Glass now all being together? And it's just really disappointing and disheartening that they are seemingly heading the heading back down the wheel. When it just feels, it feels like they just arrived on the top, like yesterday, you know. And this team now that you know. It's just disappointing because I wanted the Pirates to be good for a few seasons. It was nice to see that ballpark in October. It was nice to see those fans have something to be excited about. Now they're going to have to wait again, at least a year or two. You know, that's that's disappointing. It's uh, kind of a stars and scrubs roster, especially with uh, with Marte out of the picture temporarily. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, running John Jaso out there in right field every day is is bad. It's really bad. And um there's, you know, they're, they've kind of fallen on Alan Hansen as their um, their starting second baseman with you know, Jung Kong being out of action. So they're kind of between a rock and a hard place with some of these injuries and suspensions and things like that. Um, it's just kind of very, uh, you know, they couldn't afford to lose many players and they wound up losing some of their best and if the the rotation doesn't play to its absolute strengths, then, yeah, it can be a little bit challenging to be anything sort of competitive. But they're only three games behind the Cubs, and it is still early in the season. So, you know, anything can happen. It's not as if they're completely out of the picture yet. True. And one more guy I want to highlight here. I thought Daniel Hudson was a smart signing. He's been an absolute mess, giving up almost two home runs per nine, more than 15 hits per nine. Still has a decent strikeout-to-walk ratio, but that's another disappointment for them. I mean, we're talking about them being three games behind the Cubs, but realistically, that feels like a lot more than three games when you stack up the rosters. And I mean, golly, this team is so disappointing compared to what we thought they would be at this point. No question at all. Um, Daniel Hudson, talking about being on the Daniel Hudson train, I think I had him really high in my – uh, 50 top 50 free agents this season. Yeah, I had him at 35 out of the top 50 free agents, which was ahead of like Brett Cecil and Sergio Romo and Koji Ohara. And boy, do I feel stupid now. You know, in fairness, though, that was perfectly defensible. I mean, it was really def- – he had good stuff. And, you know, you were basically banking on the idea that getting in front of a better defense would help and getting out of that ballpark would help. It's perfectly defensible. Maybe he'll turn it around and we'll both look kind of smart. But right now, I mean, Jorge De La Rosa is the difference between me looking like a complete idiot and just most of an idiot. (laughs) So please keep pitching well, Mr. De La Rosa. Thank you for your service so far. Please keep it up because, yeesh, rough winner. 
Yeah, yeah, it wasn't uh, wasn't always the the right picks for either of us over the off season. But how, how did you like the top fifty process, by the way? Because I did not miss that. I honestly did not miss doing that, Brian. It was challenging. It was very challenging. It was really tough to predict who was going to go where that part of it. Uh, writing up the little comments for everybody was fine. That wasn't a problem at all. But, man, the predictions, trying to make predictions that made sense for a large chunk of people because, you know, part of me wanted to just pick every available closer and sign them to the Giants. And then if you would have done that, you know, sure, one of them would have been right, but you would have been wrong on all the rest. Right. Um, so that kind of thing with, well, you have to look at it from a macro level as, well, this move means this, so this other potential move means this, and going back and forth in that regard. So that was definitely challenging, and it was a long process, but I, uh, I, that I expect was... it to be very wrong. <laughs> yeah, I felt that's one of the things that, you know, when we compared Randy's picks to the human picks, and it's like, oh, Randy's got three right or whatever. But it's like, well, yeah, well, Randy can double up on outfielders to, you know, whomever – and nobody's going to be like, oh, you, you, know, you stupid random number generator. <laughs> Although people do not like Randy, in my experience. They definitely – yeah, they're not fond of that little wrinkle to it. But, you know, when if a human did that, they'd be like, yeah, you're cheating. You know, you're gaming your yeah, system right. here. So I definitely can relate to that. And plus it's just a headache to try to map out where all 50 dudes are going to go without doubling up and without, you know, cheating a little bit. So, yeah, I don't miss that part of the process. Actually writing the players up, though, you're right. That can actually – it's like annual season, you know? Yeah. You're basically writing 50 additional annual comments on seemingly like the most important actors of the winner. So that's that's fun. But, yeah, I don't miss trying to peg out where, you know, the fourth best left-handed specialist on the market is going to go. Right. I don't miss <laughs> that part at all. And I don't miss Randy's mouth. That is one, that is one trash-talking random number generator right there, man. Yeah, yeah, he didn't do so well this year. I think the only one of import that he got right was uh, Carlos Beltran to the Astros, which, you know, good for him, but I would have never seen that coming. Yeah, and that's that's why that's why they pay Randy the big bucks right there, <laughs> you know. Well, on that note, we will call it a show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, this is, again, the DFA Podcast. You can find out more about when our shows go up on BaseballProspectus.com, or you could follow us on Twitter at DFA Podcast. Uh, RJ, you can find his writing at CBS Sports and mine at Baseball Prospectus with Sean at uh, Beyond the Box Score and BP Mets. But thank you very much for listening. We hope to see you next week. And until then, just thank you for joining us. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.